0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Saker Musings podcast with me, Phil Saker. It's episode 98. It's the 14th of September, 23. And today, we're looking at how money is their weakness. So welcome to the podcast today, everyone. Uh, today we're thinking a bit about money. And this is kind of riffing off uh, a documentary I saw a few weeks ago about money, which I think I might have mentioned on the podcast, but I watched it again the other day um, just because uh, I, I don't think I quite grasped it. And I watched it again. I think that was helpful, just explaining about the state of money at the moment. But I also think it's it's actually it's useful to think about because there are real There are real problems, but I think the problems are you know, for them, as it were, for the, however you want to put it, the globalists, not just for the ordinary people. So that's what we're going to be looking at um, uh, a bit later on in the podcast. But before we do, as usual, I'm just going to go through some articles and uh, bits and pieces that I've seen. Um, There's actually been um, some really interesting things this week. So let me bring that up. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'll bring it up on the screen. Um, Here we go. So the first thing that I wanted to mention was an article by Louise Perry. Uh, Louise Perry, I've mentioned on the podcast before. Um, you probably know that she's the author of uh, the Case Against the Sexual Revolution, and she's not coming from a, a Christian perspective. Although, interestingly, over the last um, the last few few months, I do feel like she's become more kind of sympathetic and interested in Christianity, and actually, uh, that this article uh, demonstrates that. But it's an article in First Things which is called We Are Repaganizing. And um, basically, she looks at how, as a society, we are going back to the days of paganism. um, In the, you know, you're looking at the Roman Empire, for example, of the infanticide in the Roman Empire. And looking at how, you know, we. Uh, we think, you know, the modern secular society thinks that it's moving on in a progressive direction, but really it's just moving back towards uh, paganism. And uh, it's, it's uh, quite a, um, a substantial uh, piece. I think it's very good and it's definitely worth reading. It's really, really um, interesting. Let me just quote you a paragraph uh, or a little bit to um, just to whet your appetite. In other words, secular humanism is just Christianity, with nothing upstairs. Here's the problem for the feminists busy soaring at the branch on which they sit. The same Christian ideas that grant feminism its moral force carry other implications. Though women are a vulnerable group by virtue of their being smaller and weaker than men, there is another group of human beings who are weaker still. A group with no ability to defend themselves against violence, or to proclaim their rights, the very smallest and weakest among us, in fact. Whether we like it or not, we cannot place the protection of the vulnerable at the heart of our ethical system without reaching the conclusion that the unborn child ought not to be killed. I think that is a heck of a, of a conclusion um, from someone who's sort of coming from a secular feminist perspective. But she recognises this, that you know, that there is a um, Christianity is is what the ideas of our society are based on. And what's happened is we've sort of taken some of the ideas and gone along with them, but then we're we're dismissing them in in other areas. And what she's saying is that's inconsistent. And uh, I, I think it's, yeah, absolutely so important what she is, what she is saying. I actually think it It made me think of uh, Francis Schaeffer's book, The God Who Is There. And he argued that through the 20th century, we basically uh, crossed the line of despair, which is, you know, when you eliminate God, then everything becomes kind of permissible, as as Dostoevsky said. Um, So, yeah, really interesting article. Do have a read of that. Um, And just in a similar vein, Andrew Wilson wrote an article um, called... Uh, What is the West without Christendom? And this is an extract, I think, from his book. Um, But he says, The church's retreat to the margins of society could be a much-needed step in the direction of the cross. And this is in the the Plough um, magazine. Um, But let me just quote you his final paragraph, because I think this is really interesting, sort of taking it in a more positive light. He says this, There is another scenario for a post-Christian world that has spent all its inheritance. In this story, having squandered his legacy and run into trouble, even to the point of hiring himself out to other masters to make ends meet, the estranged son finally remembers that his father is still alive and his family home is still there. He comes to his senses, swallows his pride and begins the long walk home, whereupon he lifts his eyes to the horizon and sees his father, jubilant and tearful. Sprinting down the road toward him. This is um, kind of picturing Western society as like the prodigal son, and that it's still possible for the Western world to recognize that you know we can still return to God, basically, still return to to Christ to Christianity. And um, I, yeah, I, I really like that. It's just you know saying things in a more positive way, and I feel like this is. You know, it's good to be thinking about that. It's it's easy to be negative, isn't it? But, you know, we need to think, actually, things aren't just, we we hope and pray things are not just going to get worse and worse, but the people will come to their senses in time. And, um, you know, it's interesting, like I said about Louise Perry, you know, she's becoming more aware of um, Christianity, I think, and more sympathetic. Um, At the moment, I don't think she can quite bring herself to, to make that step make that jump but i hope that she and and many others will be able to make that jump in due course to realize that you know that is the the thing which we really need if we want to build a a good moral and a stable society and all of those things okay let's move on then so that's um uh yeah the next article is actually it was published on the daily skeptic um, a couple of days ago called The Energy Bill 2023 and the Fusion of Technology and Law by a Dr. David McGrogan, who I've mentioned, I think, some of his articles on the podcast before, and I, I like his writing a lot. Now, I think, in my opinion, this article is one of the most important that The Daily Skeptic have published. And it, I think you know David uh, McGrogan. He he explains what is happening in in law, which it made it made a lot of sense to me. And particularly, he sort of explains the trajectory, and that is deeply concerning. Um, and and tending towards authoritarianism. So let me just try and summarise. I, I think it, it would be really worth your while reading this this one, um, because he sets out the case, and it's very it's you know. Um, you, you, you can follow along definitely you know it, it seemed quite logical to me um, where we were going but it starts out by talking about law 2.0 which is uh, you know in the past the government's made laws and so you know they were rules for people to, to follow so that um, for example let's say murder you know well if you commit a murder this is the penalty that's wrong so we know not we know not to murder we know what the penalty is if we do so so it's a kind of a moral moral law law 2.0 is moving away from that it's actually about giving power to to regulation so rather than punishing people for doing wrong it's rather trying to to guide people into doing what they think is right so trying to to sort of order people into a particular way. So this is um, what I think this is Foucault uh, he's quoting here Uh, modern governance is not a matter of imposing law on men but of the disposition of things that is to say employing tactics rather than laws. I think this marks an important break the end of government is to be sought in the perfection maximization or intensification of the processes it directs and the instruments of government will become diverse tactics rather than laws so this is what what he he says that what government are doing now is tactics rather than laws so they're trying to encourage a particular thing rather than punish us for doing something which is morally wrong and uh, it's interesting what we were saying last week about you know the rule of law and how you know, you, the government needs a concept of morality if it is to, to govern effectively. And that's what we've lost now. It's just all about encouraging us towards using less, doing, you know, all of that kind of thing, rather than actually doing what is moral and right. But then there's a step further. And this is what the Energy Bill is doing. Um, he goes on to talk about Law 3.0. And what he says about Law 3.0 is that it is effectively using technology to enforce compliance so that's what the, the law 3.0 is doing It's not just encouraging people to do certain things but it's actually empowering um, regulators to use technology to enforce the compliance so that people don't have a choice about whether to obey the law or not. And that, I think, is, um, well, law 2.0 is bad enough, but law 3.0, as he puts it, is is even worse. And this is what, where the energy bill is is going. You know, if you look at what they say about smart appliances and, and so on and so forth. Um, and he, he, he just finishes off by talking about law's inner morality. And this is something that I just like to quote him on because I think it's, uh, it's really interesting. He says the way you, that you know policymakers can actually, um, you know, make bad law and kind of, um, you know, um, not not do the right thing. Um, and, sorry, the, I, I haven't explained that very well. But let me just quote you what he says because I think this is um, uh, yeah really really fundamental. Law 3.0 was a development which Fuller could not really have foreseen, and it therefore introduces a ninth way of failing to make law to his list. One can fail to make law by making it impossible not to comply, through the deployment of technology. And in its way, this is the worst affront to the dignity of man out of them all, because it destroys the very conditions of moral agency. I reiterate, if one does not have the freedom to choose because one is compelled to act morally, then one's moral conduct is not really moral at all. The Energy Bill 2023 is therefore not only bad law because it is unclear, because it mostly delegates authority to make ad hoc decisions to uh, rather than rules and so on, it is bad law because it seeks to automate compliance. I would say that this has the effect of putting the subjects of the law into the position of children, but this will be to underplay the affront considerably. Children's conduct provided they have good parents, is subject to rules which are clear and understandable, and with which they have the choice to comply, and children, as any parent knows, are masterful negotiators, adept at carving out exceptions to rules as required. Really it puts the subjects of the law more into the position of rats in a skinner box, and here Fuller was prescient in warning us that once the inner morality of law is routinely violated, social order would have to be enforced through other behavioural means. Instead of telling men to be good, we will condition them to be good. And instead of judging a man, we will act upon him. The mode of lawmaking which the Energy Bill 2023 exemplifies is one in which our legislators create the conditions for us to be simply acted upon. There we go. I think that is damning. And that is exactly, I mean, it puts so much into words what i've been trying to say over the last few years you know since covid which is you know we are not we are not rats you know we are not cattle to be herded we are human beings you know, we are human beings and we must be treated as human beings as i said uh, many times on the podcast uh, the one verse from the bible which has probably had more effect than any other in western civilization Is God creating mankind in his image, the image of God in every human being. And that's something which has long distinguished the Western world from, say, China. And this is where we are becoming more like China. You know, we are just there to be acted upon. You're just a vessel for compliance and they will force you to comply uh, by technology. And so I, I think that's a really, really helpful um, article there, uh, worrying, but I think we, need to, we look, need to look these things, you know, in the eye, and we need to face them square on. So the next uh, article, I'm just going to mention a few more briefly. I know I've I've talked quite a bit already about those. So just a a few brief other quick mentions. An article on the Daily Skeptic by Dr. David Livermore, um, 11th of September. uh, It says Lucy Letby must be allowed an appeal. And I know I talked a bit about Lucy Letby the past couple of weeks. This article just kind of puts the case. um, It was just an unsound conviction. It was a it was a complete miscarriage of justice. It seems to me that that regardless of her guilt, the conviction is not sound, and the judgment is is not right. So yeah, do have a little look at that if you want to see a kind of summary. It's quite a, a brief sort of summary of the problems. Um, there is an article in the Spectator saying French healthcare makes the NHS look like bedlam. Uh, this is by uh, Jonathan Miller. And let me uh, just read you what he says, which I think is helpful about, um, you know, comparing the NHS to the French system. Nothing akin to the NHS exists in France. In a country where the state is normally supreme, medical care is almost entirely delivered privately. There are no diversity, equity and inclusion officers. There are no trans flags painted on the sides of hospitals, no bed blockers, no vast legions of administrators counting paperclips. GP surgeries answer the telephone almost immediately. You can get an appointment within a day or two, or immediately if it's urgent. The excellence of my own experience is not unusual. I have a friend who had her first child in an NHS hospital and her second in France. It was like the difference between flying economy class and business, she says. Everything was better. The care, the attitude of the staff, even the food. There we go, the NHS, we... Uh, love to say, or politicians anyway, love to say the NHS is the envy of the world. But uh, we just need to, even just to look across the channel to know that things uh, could be done better and should be done better. And, uh, you know, that actually that as we, we've seen, you know, this kind of worship, uh, worship of the NHS is stopping the reform that we really need in order to to really, um, you know, make it better. OK, um, just a couple more things. One thing from uh, Steve Kirsch who says further analysis of US, US nursing home data proves once again the vaccines made it more likely for the elderly to die. And the, the subtitle is for every nursing home where the infection fatality rate decreased post-COVID vaccine there were 6.5 nursing homes where it increased by a comparable amount. That's a disaster. So he's analysed the data from the US nursing home saying that Um, covid vaccines actually increased the mortality rate and uh, yeah, do have a look at at what he has to say it seems to be um, borne out by anecdotal evidence Um, but um, yeah um, anyway do do have a read of that article it's just kind of i think this is all stuff which we've kind of been suspecting for a while but it it's looking like the data is more and more coming out but mainly the uh, the mainstream media are just not wanting to listen not just the media, but you know, doctors as well, really, and you know, the CDC and, and so on, not listening. Um, so, have a do have a look at that. The final thing, a bit of a laugh, um, but I, I thought this was well, a bit funny but also quite telling. Um, this was published in the New European, um, but uh, you know, Mariana Spring, the BBC's new or relatively new disinformation correspondent, uh, it turns out. That she lied on her CV uh, some years ago when she was first trying to get a job, um, when she was young, or when she was younger, and um, this is this just made me laugh because it's just so, it's just so the way the world is at the moment, isn't it? You know, the person who is covering disinformation and lies on the BBC herself lied on her CV. Uh, when she was trying to get her first job and this is this it just made me think you know this whole thing about disinformation you know you know this I know this it it was never about the truth it was never about the zealous pursuit of what is true and what is what is right and factual it was always about the narrative it was always about you know um, fitting in with what other people other people, other like-minded people thought, you know, to be politically correct. It was, it was never about the truth. And I think this, this whole thing with Mariana Spring just, it just demonstrates that to me very, very clearly. It was never, fact-checking has never been about the truth. It's always been just about enforcing um, the narrative and, you know, enforcing compliance really with what they, the powers that be, say is the truth. Know, whatever they is most convenient for them. Um, so, yeah, anyway, that's that's kind of what I think. Let's just take a, a pause just there, just before we move on, just to say um, thanks to everyone who's uh, got in touch with me for the comments and everything. If you'd like to leave me a comment about this, you can do that. If you're on YouTube, it's easy. Just leave a comment under the video. You can um, uh, get, get me on Telegram. There's a link to the Telegram um, sort of channel underneath or you can email me through sacredmusingspod at gmail.com and very happy if you want to get in touch anyway if you want to support the podcast there's a buy me a coffee link as well and i really appreciate um well your comments support all of that you know it's it's really great to have a sort of community of people who appreciate this and it's it's helpful so i love hearing that you know this is the podcast has kind of helped you in your your thinking and uh, you know hearing the engagement with that So let's move on now and let's think about money. So I've called this session uh, money is their weakness. And I'll explain what I mean by that um, in a moment. But before we really get going, let me just give a little disclaimer, which is that I'm not an economist, I am not an accountant, and in case you're wondering, if you're on YouTube, you're wondering what that picture is, that's Michael Palin, when he was in Monty Python, playing an accountant. I think in that particular sketch, it was an accountant who wanted to become a lion tamer, but there we go. I'm neither an accountant, nor an economist, nor a lion tamer. So, you know, there we go. I'm afraid that I I don't have any particular financial acumen or expertise. However, uh, I did, you know, so I do take what I say with a pinch of salt, by the way. Um, But I did watch an interesting documentary the other day called Ex Nihilo, The Truth About Money. And this was published by the Cobden Center. And um, it was... um, Talking about the you know the crumbling financial system, talking about how, the problems with money, that how we've got into the mess that we're in with money, about what's causing these problems, and it had a lot of interviews with people, um, people who were quite senior as well, you know, people who've been, um, you know, heads of the Federal Reserve in America, people who were, you know, um, experts and and you know bona fide, um, you know, knew what they were talking about, so you know, this is a very well put together documentary and it's well kind of produced. It's an hour long and I can recommend watching it. Let me try and summarise the state of money from what they said and, you know, from what I've kind of gleaned over this last few years. So since the, the 1970s, money has been what we call fiat money. That is money which is uh, not backed by gold or anything kind of you know concrete physical but actually is just you know a number on a computer effectively it's money because we say it is um, that's that's what what fiat is it's just saying well I decree that this is money therefore it is money and uh, you know there's there's nothing valuable of, of any particular value there it's just a number so that's that's, um, that's where we are with money Uh, something which i didn't realize before uh, watching this documentary is that money is created when banks lend money so you think when a bank lends money that they are lending you someone else's money but that's not the case effectively what they are doing is they create uh, they put the money in your account and then they effectively create a new Uh, that money in their own account as it were out of thin air um, to lend you so so that's the thing they're not actually lending you you know someone else's money they are just creating money and uh, this is something that I really didn't realize before but of course you know the banks create that money out of thin air but then if you don't repay them then they will repossess your very real hard earned physical asset. So that's, that's the thing that they, you know, the banks are not acting, you know, um, uh, ethically in this, that they are sort of creating money and it's, it's a very, very strange system. The interest rate, you know, we're often talking about the, uh, the interest rate being uh, set higher or lower by the, the Bank of England. And you know the interest rate is effectively the price of money. It is effectively you know low interest rate saying it's a low price, high interest rate is a high price, and they just you know a lower interest rate is just their attempt to try and make money cheaper, to try and encourage more lending, because that's where the money is sort of um, created, if you like. And it's quite interesting in this documentary that you know the Bank of England setting the base rate, they say is basically financial communism. No, it's the state being in charge of something which the state should not be in charge of. and again that was something that I because the you know the interest rate has been around for such a long time. I don't think anyone's really um, many people of my generation or perhaps many many people really think about that. but you know it is interference it's the state artificially setting the, the, the price of something. And they said, you know, they made the point that if the uh, if the state set the price of food too low, then they might run out of food because everyone would be wanting you know, to buy too much of it. And if they set it too high, then, you know, there'd be shortages. And, you know, this is the problem that they're not allowing the market to set uh, to set the price. Um, So, yeah, that was something which I hadn't really thought about before. So they they talk about the debt bubble, and this is something which has been you know happening in the world since um, well for again for a very long time. But uh, I mean, let me just quote you a couple of figures here. Global debt is three hundred and three trillion dollars. Uh, I found as of um, February this year, three hundred and three trillion now i know that we throw these numbers around and you know it's very very easy to to just come up with a number oh there's a million there's a billion there's a trillion and you know it just kind of trips off the tongue that is a an almost incomprehensibly large number 300 trillion dollars it's almost impossible to imagine how big uh, that is and i think you know part of the problem is that we're so used now to people talking in terms of trillions that we just, you know, we don't even notice. But it's, it's huge. It's huge. The UK national debt um, uh, as of March this year was £2,537 billion. That is, just to put that into perspective, 100.5% of GDP. So the national debt is now uh, bigger than what we produce as a country every year um, that's just to put it into perspective so debt is a huge huge part of the financial system and that's really what um, uh, makes the wheels go round if you like when it comes to comes to the world finance it's debt it's it's all based on debt and the, the whole way that the financial system has worked over the last uh, few years, particularly since the financial crash in uh, 2008, is quantitative easing, you know, printing money, um, and then keeping interest rates low to kind of maintain that debt. So rather than having to contract um, the bubble and you know bring rein in the amount of debt to, to a sensible level, Actually, that the Bank of England and world governments, you know, the EU and, and uh, others, have encouraged this kind of printing money, low interest rates, to to expand the bubble, to keep on expanding it. So, what effect is this having on what well, on us? The effect that this having uh, is firstly housing costs. This is why houses have become unaffordable. There are are other reasons, you know. We haven't, uh, probably haven't built enough houses. Um, I think there are. There's more pressure. You know, families kind of split up. Then you need two houses rather than one, and so on and so forth. So there are probably other reasons why housing has gone up. But certainly, the the reason why housing can get it could get to this point of housing just being so ludicrously unaffordable for, for most people is because of the actions of the Bank of England and the state in creating money and keeping interest rates low. Um, that if you think about it, if banks create money when they lend, then this is where the money's going. You now, when they print the money, this is where it's going. It's going on mortgages, and this is why mortgages are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and more and more out of the range of, of ordinary people. Uh, that is the problem there. And uh, it's just going to get worse and worse unless something is done. Uh, Grumming inflation—that's the second thing. Um, it's a kind of stealth tax. What's, what I think is uh, is interesting. Um, Daniel Hanan was talking in this this documentary, and he said that you know governments like inflation because you know people have this idea that inflation just sort of happens. You know, it's just like I don't know the weather. It just sometimes you get a good day, sometimes you get a bad day, and like with inflation, you know, yeah, sometimes it's low, sometimes it's high. But inflation is just a combination; it's just forces that we can't really control. But that's not the case. That inflation again is a consequence of the government's actions and, and the Bank of England's actions in uh, in doing this. So this is, um, this is again another another effect of. Um, the way that they've been acting over the past to past few years, and that the third thing is the devaluation of money. So, because money is just fiat money now, because it's just a number, you know, they say, well, it, this is just what, um, you know, uh, what we say is money, then it, its value has decreased because they printed more of it. Imagine that you had. A a rare, um, let's say, a um, uh, you know, in the days when people used to collect vinyl, for example, vinyl records, and um, you know, imagine you had a a rare record which was um, you know worth a lot of money because it was very desirable. It was a a one-off, you know, pressing perhaps, which um, you know, a lot of people wanted this this record, and um, so you had it, and it was worth a lot of money but imagine then that it got copied a whole bunch of times each time it was copied it became less expensive because there were more copies of it available and that's effectively what the government are doing with our money that as it's becoming you know they're growing the amount of of money available our money is becoming less and it sort of goes together with inflation you know that our money just um, buys less And uh, they showed in the the documentary about how the purchasing power of one dollar had dropped since the 1970s. And it's the same, I'm sure, with the pound as well, that, you know, a pound will buy you a lot less today than it did back in the 1970s and 80s. Um, And that is, again, a consequence of what the government, that's just not not, not the kind of thing that just happens, you know, but that is actually a consequence of what the government have been uh, doing. And something that came over very clearly in the program, in the documentary, is that the system is at breaking point. Um, so, um, let, uh, as I said um, just uh, just a moment ago, UK national debt exceeded GDP for the first time since 1961 this year. Now, um, back in 1961, we were still paying off the Second World War. And that was still a big factor in uh, national finances. So if you think back, you know, we haven't had a major war like that. But, you know, the, the debt has just grown and grown and grown. So that's that's a huge deal. Uh, we also now have the highest tax burden since the Second World War. Um, I, I've, I, it was quite hard to... You know, some people said since the Second World War and some said since the 1960s. And I think it depends on whether you're talking about corporation tax or tax overall I'm not quite sure but basically we are paying about one third of GDP in tax that's how they they measure it so you imagine that one third of our what we're producing as a country every year is going on tax that's incredible that's an incredible amount isn't it Um, and you add to that the problems that we are have fewer working-age people. A lot of people are out of work, receiving benefits. Um, there's a, a growing pensionable age. You know, pe- more older people than there are working people. Um, so basically, there are more and more people who are needing money from the state, and not enough people contributing to that that pot. Um, so this is this is effectively uh, the problem. And now I mentioned the financial crisis of 2008. But it hasn't been dealt with at all. You know, that this is the thing that every politician and every political party in government has just really uh, wanted to kick the can down the road. They haven't done anything about it. They've just kicked the can down the road. And um, they said, well, that's somebody else's problem. You know, they can deal with it. And that's, I guess, what the problem is with having elections every few years that the political parties are only concerned about staying in power until the next election, rather than what might be coming in 20 years, you know, in, in terms of the responsibility of what might be there 20 years later. Um. So, so yeah, I think that's um, that's also what our government. But they just haven't dealt with this problem at all. You know, it's being a growing and growing and growing problem, but it hasn't been dealt with, and now it's at sort of breaking point. That is the the main message. So, how is this, could this be a good thing, if you like? Now, I wonder if this is actually bad news for the globalists, this financial system, because if you think about it, all of their pet projects depend heavily on uh, investment through through taxation you know, state investment um, and by the way, I use the word globalists um, I, I find it quite hard to know what to call them because you know I think if you're watching this we all kind of know roughly what we're talking about but there's there isn't really a word to to describe it so, I just say globalist because that's I think that's quite a handy short, short um, shorthand. But you know um, I appreciate that other people might use different words, and um, you know I'm not trying to infer anything. Anyway, you know what I mean. So yeah, um, net zero, net zero is going to cost billions of our money. 15-minute cities, you know, going to cost money. Um, think about You, Les, you know the, the money that it's taking from ordinary people um uh, the central bank digital currency if there is ever one that will cost money again it will cost money to develop it will cost money to implement it will cost money universal basic income i mean if you think you know in the environment the green green taxes all of this everything costs money and it alls all coming back effectively to state money which comes back to the taxpayer so you know they they're demanding more and more money for their for their pet projects. Now, what happens to that if the system does collapse? And this is where I've heard uh, different different people say different things. Some people say that they want uh, the system to collapse so that they, they'll they'll be able to implement a central bank digital currency with a universal basic income. But I, I'm not sure, I, I wonder, I, I don't think a CBDC is feasible just right at the moment, I don't think the technology is there, that it would need to be developed first. And I feel like the the crash might come before that, if there's going to be one. Um, You know, So I I just think they're going to run out of money. I think that's going to be the thing, that they are just going to find that they can't spend more and more billions on green, you know, net zero fantasies, Um, that they're just not going to have the money to do it. Uh, It strikes me that that's the the likely scenario here. And if you couple that with the fact that um, technology, yes, technology does enable unprecedented control, such as the central bank digital currency, I do appreciate that, you know, that would be a disaster because the government would be able then to uh, effectively program money to lose its value over time, you know that so that you couldn't spend money on certain things. If if you said something against the government, they could terminate your, you know, your money or what, what have you. So yes, that would that would not be good. But technology can also enable unprecedented decentralisation in a way that it didn't before, and this is the thing with cryptocurrencies. Uh, for example, uh, Bitcoin. Um, I was looking into this a little bit um, as I've been thinking about it. Like I've never really looked into cryptocurrencies, but the idea behind crypto is that you know that you have a rather than a physical thing like gold, you have a digital thing. you know it's a unique thing with a digital fingerprint. it's identifiable and it's identifiable who owns it. but that it's decentralized you know using these things called blockchains, that it's kind of a decentralised um, ledger, so that every transaction is recorded peer to peer, and it will be very very difficult for someone to to defraud or to steal because they would have to change every computer on that, that network. It's, I'm not explaining it very well, um, but I, I do feel like there is something there that you know, if it, it, it would stop banks, central banks from printing money. Because, you know, bitcoins can't just be, you can't just add another one. You know, it would stop banks from, from doing that. It would, you know, limit us back into the realm of physical, you know, of, of actual things which actually exist. Um, I don't know. I just feel like it might be an answer. And I think it would take money, take the power away from the government. You know, what if... Um, you know supermarkets started accepting say bitcoin um, or another um, cryptocurrency for example or a variety as payment what would happen then you know that what what would happen if we didn't have to use the pound what would happen if we didn't have to use the dollar it would all of a sudden that that would just change wouldn't it that would really um, take the power away from um the governments and i think this is you know, on the cards, I can I can see something like this happening. So again, I think we are moving into days when yes, the government could use technology to to enforce, but also technology can be used to to decentralise and to take power away from governments, and maybe that's that's what's going to happen instead. Um, so I wanted to have that kind of positive note um, just to. Just to, as we come up to the finish here, I wanted to finish just thinking about what the Bible has to say about debt, because it sort of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning that you know our entire financial system, world financial system, at the moment seems to be based on debt, and it's just you know growing more and more debt. That's where um, what everything seems to be based on at the moment. And um, you know, the Bible's actually got quite a lot to say about money and about debt, and we can't go through all of that at the moment. But I'd, li- I'd like to read you a few quotes from the Bible about uh, about debt, and just as we finish this section. So this is Exodus twenty-two twenty-five. 25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. So this... Is uh, Moses saying to the people, um, "Don't charge interest to someone who's needy"? You know, because charging interest would make them poorer, and that's not what, not what it's there for. Actually, you need to have a concern and love for them. Don't charge interest. You know, uh, just lend them the money without. Um, so, you know, sometimes people say that, um, you know, the Bible. Uh, is against usury you know lending money at interest but I think it's actually it's not against charging interest at all you know talking about like at the business deal there but about exploitation and that's something that's very clear in the Old Testament that money can be used for exploitation and that that's something that we mustn't do. and this is what it says in Psalm 15 verse 5 it's talking about what a you know a good and godly and righteous person looks like. And it says, uh, such a person uh, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. So lending money without interest is seen as a, a righteous and good thing to do. That is to look after the poor. So, you know, again, we see this, this concern for the poor, for the less well-off, um, and that m- how money can be used to help them. Uh, and then those who exploit um the poor will be judged by God. This is what it says, Proverbs 28, verse 8. Whoever increases wealth by taking interest or profit from the poor amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. So someone who exploits the poor and just gains wealth for themselves, uh you know, on the back of poor people, actually will their money will be taken away and given to someone who will be kind to the poor. And, um, you know, we've seen examples of that in history, uh, actually. But I thought that this is, you know, um, I thought that was quite encouraging, quite positive. You know, that God cares about exploitation and that actually he will step in and act. And this is what the final verse I wanted to mention was. Psalm 12, verse 5. Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. So, you know, because there are, you know, the poor are being plundered, God will arise, you know, that God cares about that kind of injustice, economic injustice. And, you know, it made me think, actually, looking around the world at the moment, you know, given that we do have a a financial system, which is so geared to, you know, exploitation and greed and, you know, interest and, you know, debt It's so wrong. And I think, you know, that we can look at this and say, yeah, I believe that God will act and God will step in. That God is not going to let this state of affairs continue forever. So I thought that was a positive note to end on, you know, that God cares about this. That when we talk about economics, we're not talking about just another thing. But it is actually, you know, a matter of right and wrong as well, economics and money. And that, you know, we need to be doing it rightly and this is something that uh, that God cares about, and um, you know we will, He will act, and uh, we can trust Him. We can trust Him with that. Uh, so let's uh, finish now with a reflection from the Bible. Finish the podcast with a reflection from the Bible, and uh, think about what what God would have to say to us. Mm-hmm. So I thought we could have uh, finish off with a reflection from um, uh, 2 Chronicles. Um, this is probably not a, a part of the Bible which you will know well. Um, I remember I, I, I came across, um, uh, there's a website which has got lots of sermons on it. it. It sort of collates sermons from all different um, websites. I think it's called Sermon Central or something like that. And, and they actually did a, um, some data about, The number of sermons on particular Bible books, you know, you could see which was most preached on, which Bible was most preached on, which was least. And I think one and two Chronicles were the least preached on or one of the least preached on, partly because it sort of replicates um, or seems to replicate things which were in one or two Kings. Um, But I've been reading one or two Chronicles uh, lately and I've I've enjoyed reading it. But one of the things which has really struck me as I've been reading it is about how... um, you know that these these kings of, of Israel, kings of Judah, their success or, or, or not success was dependent on them um, depending on the Lord. And this is something which uh, I just wanted to read, just a short few verses here. So this is 2 Chronicles chapter 16 verses 7 to 9. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 16, uh, 16, verses 7-9. to 9. Let me just read this out. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram, and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet... When you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those who, whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. And I just wanted you know, to, to pick up on this, because I think this is such an important thing for our day and age, I think, is that are we trusting in God? And this is something where I think I I began to realise that there was something amiss during COVID particularly, which is that a lot of churches said that they were trusting in God. You know, a lot of a lot of people said that they're trusting in God. But when it came to the crunch, they weren't. They were trusting in, you know, the NHS or social distancing or in the vaccine or or in other things. And that's not to say, you know, that doctors and medicine and, and all of that is, is a bad thing. But if it displaces our trust in the Lord, it's foolish. And as, you know, the, this seer said to, to Asa, you know, you've done a foolish thing. And, um, and actually, this, this bad thing, this particular bad thing has happened because you've trusted in, you know, an earthly thing rather than trusting in God. And you've been exposed. But uh, he says, "Look, you know, think back to the past, you know, that you great victories were won when you trusted in, in me, in, in the Lord. And it, it made me think a little bit of, um, you know, the, the victory uh, over of um, Dun- the miracle of Dunkirk. You know, how the king pronounced a national day of prayer. And after that, uh, Dunkirk, it, you know, it went far better than it should have gone by rights. You know, we managed to evacuate about three hundred thousand from um, from the from there, and it was, um, you know, it w- yeah, it should never have gone as well as it did. And uh, I know many people would attribute that to the day of prayer, and I can I can see that as well. That you know, as a nation, I think that we we are just not a nation of prayer at all anymore. We've turned away. We don't trust in the Lord. And uh, whereas before we won great victories, now I think, you know, I I, I have no hope that we will win anything in our own strength. Um, but it says the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And this is where I think we need to pray that God would help us to be fully committed to him. Because you know, God does strength, God will strengthen us and God does strengthen us and it is through him that the victory is won. We don't need to think about the, the odds. We don't need to think about you know how likely it is, the strength of our opponents or anything like that. We don't need to think about China. We don't need to think about how you know it seems like they're taking over everything. Or we don't need to think about you know, any of those things or about the World Economic Forum. You know, because we know at the end of the day, God is the only one who we need to be trusting in and if we trust in him then great things can happen and he will support us and strengthen us regardless of what happens in the world but we can trust him that he is he is good and you know um yeah he will he will win the victory in the end and we need to be praying praying to him seeking him seeking his will and and trusting in him so yeah, let's be doing that as we come to a close let's pray to him and um, you know, just pray that He would bring a real change, um, not not just in the finances that we've been talking about, but in our in our whole society. So, Heavenly Father, we recognise that um, once again that there are real and deep problems in our society at the moment, and we pray for the the whole situation with money and debt that we are in at the moment. And um, we recognise, Lord, that it's almost so so hard to imagine just how bad things have gone wrong but we pray that you would bring a real change however that might happen and we pray that you would help us to be wise and discerning in the way that we use our money, the way that we use our things um, and uh, just lead us forward Lord as individuals and as a country, as a society and we pray that as um, a nation and as a western world particularly and across the whole world that many people would turn to you and put the whole trust in you we pray that you would help us as individuals to trust you completely and we pray that you would do wonderful things in our time as we trust you for the victory not in anything human but we trust in you so we pray that you would be with us this week keep us safe guide us lead us and help us in in jesus's name amen well thanks so much everyone for joining me today. I hope that you enjoyed this session. Do let me know what you think. And I hope to see you again next week for the next uh, next session. But uh, yeah, in the meantime, God bless.